Our Father and our God, we ask that you would be our interpreter this morning, that you would make the things that you have set for us to know plain and clear to us. That for those who have not come before you and believed, that this would be the day, that their hearts would be softened by your hand to seek out your wonderful mercy. We pray for our pastor as he preaches the word this morning, that you would use him for your purposes, that you would give him clarity of mind and heart as he speaks the truth. We ask these things in the holy name of your Son. Amen. You would turn your Bibles, please, to Mark's Gospel and chapter 6. Mark's Gospel, chapter 6. As we've been working through our exposition of Mark's Gospel, there are two themes that have emerged and taken prominence. One, Peter, or Mark sets forth in the very first verse of the Gospel. But this is the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So all that Mark has recorded and given to us up to this point is, is in large measure to show and to demonstrate and to prove to us that Jesus is, in fact, divine. He is the Son of the living God. And also, a second theme is how do men respond to that reality? How do men respond to the reality that Jesus has set before them as the Son of God? And, and we find that there are two and only two responses in the Scriptures, belief and unbelief. There is a willing embrace and a delight and a joy in who Christ is and his words and works, or there is a rejection of it. And there's never, ever, ever any middle ground. There's belief and there is unbelief. Now, the text set before us this morning, we're looking at verses 45 through 52. And I have to warn you up front, there is a sort of, I don't know if the right word is danger. I've been thinking about this. There is a, at least a possibility of danger when we come to familiar texts. This, of course, is the text that describes Jesus walking on the water. Well, surely all of us are familiar, at least to some degree or another, with the story of Jesus walking on the water. I mean, even unbelievers, even if they've never opened the Bible before, are aware of the claim that Jesus walked on the water. In fact, it's even part of our ordinary English language. It's an idiom. We might say, well, you think so-and-so walks on water. And what do we mean by that? We mean to think that they're, they're high and lifted up, or they're faultless or sinless, or at least somebody thinks that they are. So these, these things have a, a certain temptation that comes. And when we come to familiar passages like this, we can, on the one hand, just assume that we know the main idea of the text. We can just assume because we've heard it before, and we just assume that every time we've ever heard it and studied it on our own that we've got it right. And so there's that one temptation, and maybe you have it exactly right, but it will be an encouragement to you nonetheless to hear the Word of God expounded. But there's also a temptation on texts like this to moralize them to moralize the text. And what do I mean by that? Well, we take this only as a kind of an immediate life application lesson, and because we interpret it through the grid of me, you interpret it through the grid of you, and you think, well, how do I apply this? So, so, so the, something goes like this. In Matthew's Gospel, describing this same event, 
he adds to it the story or the, the account of Peter requesting of the Lord that call me out on the water. And Peter, of course, walks out on the water. And so then the moral lesson is you need to have faith like Peter that can walk on water. Well, where's the problem in that? A few minutes later, Peter looks at the wind and waves and begins to sink. So now the, the admonition is, don't be like Peter. Keep your eyes fixed on the Lord Jesus. Okay, so which is it? Which moral application are we supposed to? You see where that gets into difficulties. It doesn't mean that there's not some truth in those things, but that's not what the text is about. And I've already alluded to, there's a third dilemma, and that's to search for ourselves in the text rather than looking for Christ. It's to find ourselves there. And to think, we read through... Mark's Gospel, chapter 6, 45 to 52, so where am I here? Because everything is about me, right? Don't we naturally think that way? Now, we must fix our eyes upon the Lord Jesus, certainly, and we are called to exercise our faith and believe the Word of God, but Mark has a greater point in giving this narration to us. He has a theological point. And I mentioned already these, these two themes that have already emerged, Jesus as the Son of God, and this contrast, this response to Jesus as the Son of God is either belief or unbelief. And these two themes are right before us, in fact, very prominent in this narration. We looked last time, last week, at the feeding of the 5,000. We observed in that text that there were allusions, not illusions with an I, but allusions with an A to the Old Testament, and particularly to the feeding of the 5,000 in the wilderness. So here's Jesus, or to the feeding of, of God's people in the wilderness, and here is Jesus feeding 5,000 men plus women and children. could be a number of more than 15,000 souls that he fed with five loaves and two fish. Well, it was a supernatural work, a creative work by which Jesus demonstrated that he is an infinite provider, that he is the Jehovah, the same Yahweh who provided for his people in the wilderness, that he is the creator, that he is the gentle shepherd of Israel. Well, in today's text, we're going to see another Old Testament illusion. Just slightly farther back, the illusion that we see with Jesus walking on the water is an illusion to Moses by the hand of God delivering the people through the waters of the Red Sea and delivering them out of Egypt. So it's, a, it's, a, it's an allusion to the Exodus. I'm going to show you in the text where, where I'm getting that. I, I hope you will see by the end that I'm not just making that up. Here's the, the, the message of the text, of the sermon today. The real thrust is this. Jesus is presented to us as a divine king, the son of God. And this king is operating, is serving, is living according to God's definitive plan. God has a definitive plan. It will not be thwarted. It will not be undone. It will not be marginalized by any act of human beings or anything in creation. And according to that plan, this king is rescuing his people. He's rescuing his people. And it's incumbent upon us to believe that. So that's our, our three points. That he is a king by plan, not by force. He's a king by plan and not by force. And secondly, 
that God's, that Yahweh's plan is a plan of rescue. It's a plan of rescue. It's a plan of deliverance. And lastly, this plan must be believed. The plan must be believed. So let's read together God's holy word, Mark chapter 6, beginning in verse 45. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land, and he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost, and they cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, I am. Do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. I want you to notice something. Of course, Mark's signature word is immediately. So we have this miracle performed with the feeding of the 5,000 men, again, plus women and children. And then we're told immediately Jesus makes his disciples get into the boat. This was not a suggestion. It was not a request. It was not an option. He made them to get into the boat. And the question is, why? And, and why the, the urgency? I want you to notice as we work through this first part of the, the narrative here, that he is a king by plan, not by force. And we've already talked about the hazard, the danger of the crowds pressing in upon them. We saw last week the disciples hadn't even had opportunity to eat because the crowds were, were pressing upon them in such a manner. But also, the crowds pr pr um, proposed or purposed a certain harm that could come. And what we, want to, what we want to observe here is that Jesus is a king by plan. Now, Mark's already noted this for us, in that all things are happening according to God's sovereign decree and by his perfect divine providence. If we go back to chapter 1, we of course know in the, verse, the very first verse, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written. What is Mark doing? This was not by random. This was not by chance. All these things were happening on purpose, according to God's foreknowledge, according to God's decree. But while we're still there in chapter 1, look over at verse 15. John the Baptist comes, and he begins to preach. And what does he say? The time is fulfilled. What time? The time in which God had purposed at this time, not another time, but at this time to send his son into the world for the purpose of saving a people for himself. So we see already in Mark's gospel that this idea of plan and purpose was already put before us, but it's fleshed out even more when Jesus was tempted by the devil in the wilderness. One of those temptations was to become a king before his time. 
When, when Satan said, if you will bow down to me, I will give you the kingdoms of this world. And there were, you would bypass God's plan. You would bypass God's means of suffering and dying in order to become a king. But there's a third piece of evidence that helps us to see this, this picture, this what's going on with Jesus saying, guys, get in the boat and go. In John's gospel, when John records the event of the feeding of the 5,000, remember that was the one and only miracle that's recorded in all four Gospels, is the feeding of the 5,000. When that happens, afterwards, John says this, when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world, perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king. Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. And so when we put the puzzle pieces together and we compare the Gospels, what's Jesus doing? He's recognizing the crowd has political ambitions. Now, you can imagine the, the attractiveness of a king who can provide food out of thin air. Economically, militarily, politically, socially, that's kind of a big deal, kind of a big benefit. And so the, the crowds, we want him as our Messiah. Now keep in mind, I noted last week, all these events are taking place at the time of the Passover. So the crowds around Jerusalem have swollen, you know, probably a hundred times what they ordinarily are because pilgrims were coming from all over the world or all over that, that, that region. And as they came, they would sing things like the songs of ascent. And so they have very, they have messianic things on their mind. They have spiritual things on their mind. And here is a man in a deserted place who fed 5,000 plus women and children with five loaves of bread. And they think, this must be the king. Note also some things that we know about some of the disciples. Men like Simon the Zealot, who was formerly a political zealot opposing vigorously the Roman occupation of Jerusalem. And so Jesus recognizes the temptations of his own men. He said, guys, it's time for you to go. And Jesus withdraws, retreats to a mountain so that he could pray. Well, then, of course, we also have, as, as the New Testament is, is expanded and unfolded for us, after the death and burial and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. We have apostolic testimony that reminds us that all these things were happening according to plan. So for example, when Peter stands up and, and preaches his famous sermon, his very first public sermon at Pentecost, after, at Pentecost, and he says, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. You know what Peter says? All the events that led up to the betrayal, the arrest, the crucifixion, the death, the burial, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Peter says all of that, all of that is the phrase he uses, the definite plan 
and foreknowledge of God. So when the crowd comes and seeks to take him by force, Jesus, no, it's not time for that. And no crowd, no mob, no man is going to dictate God's terms. Only God will determine when and how his people are saved. Dear brothers and sisters, not one thing, not one thing was left to chance in the life and ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we see that as he goes up, he, 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 he dispatches his disciples to the boat. And then Jesus retreats. He, he goes to a hill to pray, to be alone with his Father in prayer. And no doubt, he prayed as he always did for his people. He prayed for their welfare. He prayed for the crowd. He had compassion on them as, as sheep without a shepherd. But also he was praying, no doubt, that God would grant him the grace, humanly speaking, to persevere in the plan that God had established before the foundations of the earth was laid. All happened in the ministry of Christ precisely according to God's predetermined plan to redeem a people for himself. Now, why is this important? Why is it that Mark is reminding us of this fact at this particular place? Why does the Holy Spirit, more importantly, want us to know that nothing happened by accident? Everything was happening precisely according to God's plan. And the answer is really quite simple, but it's, but it's profound. If the kingdom of Jesus Christ was established according to divine plan and foreknowledge, as Peter said, the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, then all who enter into that kingdom also enter by the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. God established his kingdom according to his decree and according to his providential rule, and he ushers men and women and boys and girls into his kingdom according to his definite plan and foreknowledge and providential rule of all things. And you may think to yourself, well, now David, that's a pretty big logical leap to make that conclusion. That just because God ordered this, these events of Christ's life in a particular way, in a particular time, and by particular means, to, to conclude from that that all those in the kingdom are also sanctified, preserved, and kept according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, isn't that a leap? Well, I think that's a reasonable question. And Paul, the Apostle Paul, anticipates that very idea, that very question, which is why in Romans 8, in Romans 8, he says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. Not some things, not some things part of the time, but all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew. See, it's the same language that Peter used about Christ. Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. In order that... He might be, Jesus might be the firstborn among many brothers, and those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So saints, it is vital for us to pick up on this theme, to pick up on this reality that Everything that Jesus was doing was according to the
the divine plan and foreknowledge of God, the definite plan. And not one detail was lacking. Not one detail failed to materialize. And so it is in our own lives. So it is for us. If, if you are here this morning and you are in Christ, it is because according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, he ordered it and ordained all things to work to the point in time when you came to believe and understand the gospel of Jesus Christ, believed upon him by faith and turned away from your sin. And not only that, but everything since then has been ordered and governed for your good, for your sanctification, for your progress in holiness. Our Lord Jesus is fulfilling a divine and eternal plan. No man, no group of men can thwart or hinder or undo or repudiate the plan and purpose of God. Not only with respect to the, to the death of Christ, but with respect to your own Christian walk. Nothing, nothing can work against you, ultimately or finally. But notice something here in the second place. This, this plan is not just a, a general plan, but it is targeted. It is targeted to one purpose, and it is a purpose of rescue. It is a purpose of rescue. Yahweh's plan involves a rescue. This eternal plan of God would ultimately involve the Lord seeking out his people, rescuing them from their sin and misery. And again, last week, as we looked at the feeding of the 5,000, we saw that Mark recorded these events... The Holy Spirit recorded these events through, through Mark in such a way that our minds would go back to the wilderness and that we would notice and we would meditate upon the fact that Jesus is the very same God. He is Yahweh who fed his people in the wilderness. He is the bread of life who feeds his people both through ordinary means. Your, your pantries, your refrigerators, your tables are filled with food and, and by ordinary means. You, you work. He's provided currency, money, and you go and exchange those things for food, for things to eat for your families. But throughout history, God has also worked supernaturally in the provision of his people. So Jesus is that bread of life. And in the account of Jesus walking on water, there's a similar design by Mark to take our minds back to a previous event. So I mentioned last week, you know, the, the, the famous quote from Mark Twain, that history may not repeat itself, but it certainly rhymes. And here we, again, we see a rhyming. Now, ordinarily, when you have a rhyme or an echo, it's, it's diminished in volume, right? And here it's actually magnified. It's the opposite. Throughout the scriptures, the historical event of the exodus of Egypt, or exodus from Egypt, God's removal and deliverance of his people has been a type in fact, it's a, it's a case study in Yahweh's power, in his compassion, in his authority, in his willingness to rescue his people from a much greater affliction than Egypt, their own sin, their own darkness, their own self-centered tyranny of sin and death. And Mark wants us to discern something about Jesus, that he is the Son of God, he is the greater Moses who led his people through the waters of the Red Sea. But even more, Mark wants us to see Jesus as the Son of God, who is the same God who parted those waters supernaturally and caused his people to pass safely 
by. Now, again, that might seem like a big claim. Maybe another leap. But let me try to, to, to show you from the text how it is that Mark is alluding to the wilderness and why this is helpful for us to see it and to believe that. Notice the text tells us when evening came, the boat was out on the sea. So the, the, the disciples had obeyed their Lord Jesus. They get in the boat. He goes up to the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch, he comes to them. You know, this text tells us, I think, something important about the futility of human effort. Here they are rowing and rowing and rowing, and they're not getting anywhere. Now, the timeline here, I think, is, is, is helpful for us to discern. Notice, he sends them to the boat when evening came. We're not told a time, but dusk, as the sun is going down. So for the sake of argument, let's just, a good round number, let's say it's 6 p.m. Maybe it's 5, maybe it's 7. But Jesus comes to them, he observes them and comes to them in the fourth watch of the night. Now, according to the, to the Roman reckoning of, of the watches of the night, this would have been between 3 and 6 a.m. You ever rode a boat? It's hard work. And to row for 9, 10, 11, 12 hours and not really get anywhere is a, is, a, is, a, is a toilsome thing. I remember years ago we went on a, on a camp out and we had a, a, a church member that had loaned us some kayaks. And Jay Mockle and I were very excited to get out and fish and get a kayak around this, this small lake. And it was so windy the couple of days we were there that all you could do was kind of stay in the cove near the shore because if you, as soon as we got out and tried to row, you didn't make very much progress at all. And as soon as you ceased the labor, immediately you're going backwards. Well, these were seasoned fishermen. They were, were, were told that they were likely three to four miles from the shore, but Jesus notices them. He sees them. In fact, the text tells us when evening came, the boat was out on the sea and he was alone on the land and he saw that they were making headway painfully. Now, whether he saw in, in, a, in a supernatural sense or whether just because of his mountain perch and the reflected moonlight upon the sea, he was able to see them, we're not told that. But it doesn't really matter. The fact is that our Lord observed their affliction and visited them in their affliction. Where does, does that sound familiar? It's precisely, almost word for word, what is, is recorded for us in Exodus chapter 3. The Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey. Saint, our God is a God who observes and sees the afflictions of his people. And when he sees and observes the afflictions of his people, what is his response? He comes to them. He makes himself known to them. He visits them there. Now there's something else here, I think, that is an allusion to the Old Testament 
Look at verse 48. The second half. About the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass them by. He meant to pass them by. Now, what do you make of that? Commentators have gone in a bunch of different directions there. This seems to be the most common or most popular uh, uh, explanation is that, well, this is written from the disciples' vantage point, and as they sat on the boat and they saw him, it appeared like he was just going to walk right by them. And so from their perspective, it appears that he intended to pass them by. Well, that may be true, but I don't think that's, I don't think that's quite it. That doesn't make sense to me, for one thing, because the disciples actually responded in fear. Initially, they responded in fear. They cried out because why? They thought he was a ghost. They weren't asking him to draw near to them. They cried out in fear. So it doesn't make sense that from their perspective, well, we were just eagerly waiting for him to come to the boat. He, just, he was just going to walk right past us. No, that, that doesn't make a lot of sense. But what does it mean then? Again, it's another allusion to the Old Testament demonstrating that Jesus is God. We see this phrase, the Lord passing by, multiple times in the Old Testament. I'll give you a couple of examples. There are other places, but here's a couple of examples. In 1 Kings chapter 19, this is Elijah. Elijah is, is, is in a cave hiding out. And the Lord says, go out and stand on the mount before the Lord, and behold, the Lord passed by. And a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke, it, broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And you know the rest of the passage. God speaks to Elijah through a, through a still, small voice. But the key thing is, it's described as the Lord passed by. And we see this famously also in the book of Exodus. And again, here's the specific allusion here. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with Moses and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression of, and sin but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. I believe this is an illusion, saints, in such a way that Mark is showing to us this is God, very God, who is passing by. In, in the Old Testament, we see God passing by. It's because his glory is veiled. Remember when the, the description of Moses, Moses was told by the Lord, I will go past you, but I will cover your face, and you will only see my back of my glory as I pass by. And here we see Jesus, whose, whose true glory and splendor is veiled according to his humanity. He's, he's humbled himself and taken on the form of a servant. He's taken on our human flesh, and in that way, he was veiled. He was going to pass them by. This is more of a spiritual passing by than a physical one. Jesus walks out on the water, and this is probably, again, some three to four miles from the land, and the disciples don't recognize him. In fact, their response is uncomfortably 
too close to King Herod's response than true faith, isn't it? He's a ghost. You see, Herod thought John the Baptist had been raised from the dead. Thought this was that he's being haunted by the ghost of John the Baptist. Well, here, and, and again, we can we put ourselves in the disciples' place. We can be tempted to be way too hard on them here. And think to yourself, well, if I'd been out there, I would have recognized the Lord for sure. No, you wouldn't. I wouldn't have. These are seasoned men. They've been out on this lake a lot. They've been out there at all, all hours of the night because fishermen, that's, that's kind of what you do. You're out there at, at hours where other people are not. They're out there in the middle of the night, and a man walks out there. You're three or four miles from the shore. They know there is no natural explanation for this. None. And so they respond in fear. Now, why is this story here? Why is this written down for us? Why are we told these particular details? I think clearly this is an event that's demonstrating the supernatural power of Christ to deliver his people. He is the ark who went across the water. He is the one who delivers his people through the raging seas. More than that, it's here to demonstrate for us once again that Jesus is no ordinary man. Jesus did not come merely to teach morality and ethics. Jesus did not come merely as a guru to help people navigate life and the complexities and the uncertainties and the challenges and the sorrows of life. Jesus is nothing other than the Son of God. He is the Yahweh of the Old Testament, and his mission is a rescue mission. He has come to seek to come to seek and to save those who are lost. He's come seeking out his people. And here as he walked up onto the water, the disciples, even in the frailty of their flesh, they didn't recognize him. But let's notice in the last place what we are called to do in response to this, what the disciples were called to do in response to his appearing to them, in response to him coming to them to rescue them. And that is that the plan has to be believed. I mean, we're talking about a plan. We're talking about a plan that can't be thwarted. The plan is going to happen according to the predetermined counsel of God. And the plan specifically involves a rescue, not just an improvement. Jesus didn't come for your best life now. He came to save you from your sin, to wash you, to cleanse you, to make you right with God, to reconcile you to a God with whom you have been at enmity from before you were even born. But this plan has to be believed. Take note of the Lord's response to the fear of his disciples. We're told he meant to pass them by at the end of verse 48. Verse 49 tells us, But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost, and they cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. Notice it's not just one disciple who saw it and then murmured to the other, and they all believed the report. They all saw it. 
There, there was no place for this being a fantastical or an imagination. They all saw the same thing, which enhanced, no doubt, their fearful response. And again, I think this is yet another allusion to the time of the Exodus. Here we have yet another allusion. And you may notice, if you were following along closely as I was reading, I'm reading from the ESV, they all saw him and were terrified, but immediately he spoke to them and said, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. Well, when I read it initially, I said, I read it correctly. Take heart, I am. Does that sound familiar? This is God's covenant name for himself. I am. Take courage, I am. It's the, the Greek two-word phrase, ego, I may. Ego, I may. I am. It's unfortunate that our, our English Bibles tend to obscure this fact. Jesus isn't saying, as we would say, it's me, I'm here. I am. And surely, the disciples should have recognized that language they would have recognized such language. This was the language of their covenant God repeated throughout the Scriptures. This was a frequent use by God of His own name. For example, in Genesis 28, God speaks to Jacob. Now, incidentally, He had said these very same words to Jacob's father Isaac and to Isaac's father Abraham. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac, the land on which you lie, I will give to you and your offspring. I am the Lord. And of course, this is exactly the name that God told Moses to repeat to the Israelites. You remember the story? Moses is walking along one day, and there's a burning bush. And, and Moses draws near to investigate this burning bush. It was burning, but it wasn't consumed. And the voice of the Lord comes to him from the bush. Take off your sandals, Moses. You're standing on holy ground. And then he tells Moses, I want you to go to my people. I have heard their cries. I see their affliction. I have heard them, and I'm going to deliver them. Moses, you go and tell them that I'm going to deliver them. You remember what Moses asked? Who shall I say sent me? I mean, people are not going to believe me. Who should I tell them sent me? You know, it's kind of like in your home when one kid... He's giving instruction to another one. And they always, they should preface it, well, mom said to do this. Well, who shall I say sent me to tell you to take the trash out? You tell them dad told you. Well, this is something, Moses' question is not unreasonable on its face. Who shall I say sent me? And you know the Lord's response. God said to Moses, this is Exodus 3.14, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. I am. I am the self-existent one. I am the eternally existent one. I am the one without beginning, middle, or end. I am the eternal God. And Jesus walks out on the waves. The men respond in fear. They cry out. He says, take courage, I am. Through the prophets, the Lord often uses his covenant name specifically to comfort his people in their affliction and in their fear. 
I'll just give you one example. We could go on for, for the next half an hour reading passages like this, but Isaiah 48, verse 12, listen to me, O Jacob and Israel, whom I called, I am, I am the first, I am the last. My hand laid the foundation of the earth, and my right hand spread out the heavens. When I call to them, they stand forth together. And Jesus comes on the wind and the waves, walking out to them in the middle of the night, in which they've been rowing futilely all night long, and he says, I am. I am the one who spread out the heavens. I am the one who laid the foundation of the earth. When I call them, they stand forth together. Now, the disciples had already witnessed this, hadn't they? They were in the boat, fearful for their own lives. They woke Jesus up and said, Master, are you not worried? Are you not concerned? Do you not care that we're perishing? And there, we're told the Lord Jesus rebuked the wind and the waves, and instantly, immediately, all was calm. Well, here, he doesn't even speak. Here, he doesn't even speak. Take heart, I am, do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased. The wind ceased. So now, what is the proper response of the disciples to such a statement? In the midst of all of their fear, in the midst of, of the, this apparition, that they, what they think they've seen is some sort of ghost, and they, and they cry out in fear, and he says, take heart, be of good courage, I am. And he steps into the boat, the wind ceases. What is the proper response to that? It was to fall down and worship. They surely would have recognized such a title that Jesus gives to himself, I am. What must a man do in the immediate presence of God? Fall on your face and worship. Fall on your face and worship. Now, you see, something happens, though. We have a, we have a, a sort of an editorial remark in verse 52. They, meaning the disciples, did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. Notice that Jesus does not rebuke them here. Jesus does not draw attention to their hard hearts. He does not chastise them. He doesn't mock them. He doesn't lecture them. He had already said, I am, and that should have been more than enough it should have been enough. Should be enough for me as well, and for you as well. But the disciples didn't recognize yet that this event and the feeding of the five thousand were connected. And so, what we have here in verse fifty-two, I think, is an autobiographical reflection upon this event, probably mostly from Peter, many years later. Many years later, Peter's now an older man, a more mature man, a wiser man, a more humble man, indwelt by the Spirit of the living God. And he looks back on that event. He says, we didn't get it. 
we were this close to him. We were with him. We were there when he fed the, the 5,000. Peter said, I remember the weight of that basket in my own hands as I picked up the scraps of food. I remember the terror in my soul when I saw this thing, this man walking out on the water, and I didn't know what to think of it. I cried out in fear, and I never made the connection that this is the Lord. This is God. And he looks back with a lament at his faithlessness in that moment. Now, the Lord doesn't condemn them here. The Lord doesn't rebuke them. The Lord simply gets in the boat and speaks encouragement to them. Take heart. Be of courage. I am. John Gill makes the observation, he says, hardened not by sin or against Christ, much less in a judicial way, but there was a great deal of dullness and stupidity and want of attention in them. The glory of Christ, which he manifested and showed forth in his miracles, was not so clearly and fully discerned, attended to, and acknowledged by them as it might reasonably be thought it would. For notwithstanding these miracles, which they daily saw, they stood in need of divine illuminations, that the darkness of their minds being removed, they might behold the glory of Christ as the glory of the only begotten of the Father. Now, universally, when we read in the Scriptures and we read about someone being hard-hearted, universally, without exception, that is blameworthy. Without exception, there is culpability on the man, on the woman, who is said to be hard-hearted. It is not a place of neutrality or innocence to be hard-hearted. Now, our Lord, according to his grace, does not rebuke them. He does not admonish them. But it does remind us of something very important. Unbelief is always nearby. Unbelief is always near to us. If the disciples, listen to this, if the disciples who walked with Jesus, ate with Jesus, slept next to Jesus, heard Jesus every single day. And remember, John tells us that if, if all the things that Jesus said or did were to be written down, the whole world couldn't contain them. So we only have a portion of what Peter and the others saw and witnessed. And yet Peter recognized in retrospect, and we were this close to rejecting him. We were just this far away from being unbelieving. And I think where Peter's mind must have gone as he contemplated all the sermons he had preached, the people to whom he had ministered, those who had been healed, delivered of demons, and who persisted in unbelief. And even a former cohort of his, by the name of Judas, one of the twelve, who ultimately rejected the Lord in unbelief. And so Peter looks back and recognizes the grace of the true and living God to give him the light of the gospel to believe it. 
And so here as Mark is, is unpacking for us and laying before us this theme of belief and unbelief, the response to Jesus who is God. And Peter recognizes that it's not just a cliche to say, but for the grace of God, go I. What was the answer? For the weak faith of the apostles producing eternal fruit, the power of the Holy Spirit. The power of the Holy Spirit. See, there's an irony here. The crowd wanted him as king, but they don't even understand who he is. And yet the disciples have hardened hearts. They remain in their unbelief. And it so reminds us, saints, of the necessity of a supernatural work of the Holy Spirit. Not just once. To cause us to believe initially upon the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ so that we might be justified before the Lord but on a daily, ongoing basis that we will taste the power of the Spirit in our pursuit of holiness and sanctification. We have an urgent need of a supernatural work of the Spirit of Christ within us to cause faith to be born, but also to see faith grow and be nourished and built up. the necessity of the work of the Spirit in our own hearts to both to create and to sustain true faith. And I just can imagine that scene where Peter's speaking with John Mark. as John Mark prepares to write this gospel. And Peter with a hard-earned humility. says there was nothing, there's no natural explanation, not only for Jesus walking on the water, but for our faith. There was no natural explanation for that. Just as the feeding of the 5,000 was a supernatural creative act of God, just as walking on the water was a supernatural creative act of God, so too is faith in my own heart was once dead. So too is faith in my life that was once at enmity with God. Church, do we hear the gospel in this story? Do we, do we see and recognize the grace of God and the rescuing power of Yahweh to seek and to save sinners, to preserve us, to work out his plan irrevocably, uninterrupted, to see that plan come to fruition of, of rescuing a people for himself? And to see the nearness of unbelief. Do not think to yourself, well, I'm, I'm a Christian, I've been a Christian for such and such time, unbelief is not a problem for me anymore. But he who thinks he stands, take heed lest he fall. Our triune God has purposed from eternity to save a people for God's own possession, for his own glory. God the Father elected from all of eternity those whom he would save, and in the fullness of time, God sent forth his own son, according to his definite plan and foreknowledge, to seek out and to rescue his people. And we have a duty. Here's the duty of our response, is to believe that. To believe it. We have to believe that God is actually not only at work historically, but at work presently in carrying out just that plan. 
We must believe not only that Christ has come, but that he has come according to the word of God and that he will accomplish all that God has decreed will come to pass. I'll assign you some homework about that. Go home and read 1 Corinthians 15 and meditate upon this reality. Just Paul, Paul begins that passage with this. I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. And Paul repeats that theme throughout the chapter. That all of these things happened according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. That Christ came, that he died all according to the Scriptures. Do you believe that God has decreed all things from eternity? Do you believe this includes the rescue of human beings who are dead in sins and trespasses? Do you believe that, that the exodus has been surpassed as mighty and powerful as God demonstrated himself to be to Pharaoh and to his armies? Do you believe that that has been surpassed in power and glory in the deliverance of men and women and boys and girls from the pit of hell? From the bondage of sin? from the affliction of our own flesh, believing this plan, believing in the king who has brought about this plan, will bring to you life in Christ. It will bring to you forgiveness of your sins. It will bring to you sanctification and holiness without which no one will see God. King Jesus is fulfilling a divine and eternal plan. It's not that he has fulfilled a plan. There is that. But he is currently fulfilling a divine and eternal plan. This plan comes to pass by the power of God. It comes to pass for the purpose of rescuing his people. It comes to pass in such a way that we must believe it in order to be saved. Brothers and sisters, what do you believe? about the identity of Jesus Christ and his power and his authority and his willingness to deliver you. Perhaps some of you need to be reminded of a lesson that the disciples learned in the middle of the night on a lake or maybe in retrospect thinking about that event that it was not the strength of their faith that saved them. By their own recollection, their hearts were hard. There was a dullness. And yet, by the grace of the living God, they were granted the ability to believe. And perhaps some of you need to be encouraged because you kind of get in this cycle where you're frustrated with your own lack of faith, and then you feel the condemnation of God for your lack of faith, which causes more frustration and consternation and sorrow because of that lack of faith, and you just get this downward spiral. And I suspect most, especially anyone with a tender conscience, has been affected by such a cycle before. Will you take notice of the manner in which 
the Lord Jesus dealt with this with his disciples, even in their dullness, even in their weakness. He sat beside them in the boat. He ministered to them. He demonstrated his willingness to rescue them because of his love for them. Our Lord Jesus hasn't changed. The same Christ who walked on the water in pursuit of his men in trouble is the same Savior who draws near to you, especially in your affliction. Will you cling to that? Be encouraged by that? Let's pray and ask for the Spirit of God to press these things in upon our minds. God and Father, we are thankful that you have demonstrated your love and mercy and power to us. I, I pray that you will help us to believe what your word says about the person and the work, the words and the works of our Lord Jesus Christ. Help us to believe the glorious gospel of your Son. I pray for those who are here today that have not yet believed or who perhaps are actively rebelling against this gospel, seeking their own way. And I pray that such a one would, would see themselves in the disciples straining against the wind, roar, rowing and rowing and rowing and not going anywhere but backwards. And I pray by the power of your Spirit you would convict of sin, of your righteousness, of your mercy revealed in the Lord Jesus Christ. May we see him as the true and living God who has come to seek and to save we who are sinners, we who have gone astray. We ask this by his power and authority and for his glory. Amen.